Hello, and welcome to the How to Win It Roulette episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with my colleague Emily Peck. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires, who is a Slate colleague, writes the Paydirt column here and writes for the New York Times too. Hello. And we are going to tell you how to win at roulette. For realsy, man. It's a great story and it tells us a lot about the nature of intelligence and artificial intelligence. We are going to talk about the mooch. The Scaramucci story is back. We're going to check in on how his investors are doing and how he's doing. And in the Slate Plus, we're going to talk about Clarence Thomas and corruption in American politics. Um, But first, we are going to talk about... What are we going to talk about first, Emily? We're going to talk about the podcast Doomsday that isn't a doomsday. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So because we love nothing better than media navel-gazing on this here show, um, it seems like a good time to talk about podcasting, wouldn't you say, Emily? Yes, I really wanted to talk about podcasting, I would say, Felix, because I've been reading reports now for a few months that podcasts are in a slump. There was a piece in the Times in January. Um, There was a piece uh, by Nick Qua and Vulture. And then um, I believe NPR, just this just happened. NPR laid off 10% of its staff and cut four podcast, uh, podcasts. Um, one, which had been a huge hit in Visibilia, but a little less popular um, recently. And, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing in, in the podcast world over, you know, what's going on. Is this just sort of there was a boom and now things are evening out? Or is there's something else happening here where the market and the audience is shrinking in a permanent way. I mean, what so do you think so the first thing that I really want to say, and I cannot emphasize this enough, is that the market and the audience is not shrinking in any way whatsoever. Every single statistic that we are seeing about the site, that the number of dollars that advertisers are spending on podcasts, the number of minutes that people are listening to podcasts in aggregate, if not quite per person, all of it is going up and to the right. And it's going up and to the right at really quite astonishing speeds. Like, 27%, those kind of numbers year on year, right? So podcasting as an industry is growing probably faster than almost any other part of the media right now. It is a bright shining light in a media world that is generally quite dim. Um, the problem seems to be that it is not growing as fast as many media organizations had anticipated that it would. And they had invested on the basis of even faster growth, and they had been putting money into shows on the basis that they would grow even faster. And then that money failed to get recouped in the sort of necessary amount of time. So this this is a failure... Um, relative to expectations, but it's not a failure in sort of absolute terms. Yeah, there's also a, a thing that's happening where brands tend to cut marketing budgets first if they think they're going into a recession or that they're facing uh, potential economic changes. And, and that's happening a little bit too. So the, the people funding the podcast are, you know, pulling budgets for uh, 
if there's less advertising, then there's not as much money to support podcasts in general. So right, but I come really back, but Elizabeth, I come back to what I said. There is not less advertising. There is more advertising. There is like up 27% year on year more advertising. Brands are spending more money than ever on podcasts. So like if that was the case, then that would be a very easy, nice, tidy explanation. You know, the amount of money going into podcasts is going down. Therefore, the amount of money you know, available to produce podcasts is going down. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening. It's similar, I think, to what has happened in other industries, tech specifically, I'm thinking about, which is things were really booming um, in the wake of the pandemic, especially with audio. So like Felix said, there was this anticipation of of growth. Like things are still really good, but they're not as amazing, amazing as people thought they were going to be. There was a piece in the journal this week, for example, um, about how tech hired people that they didn't really need, anticipating that they would at some point need them. <laughs> there were some fun examples, you know, of people hired at Meta who really didn't have anything to do. And the theory behind hiring them was just like scoop up the talent because the the growth will be there and the work will come. And perhaps in podcasts, too, there was a theory of, like, if we build it, they will come. Um, but it does seem notable for the things that are getting cut, which seem to be the more um, highly produced episodic uh, seasons of podcasts versus, like, TV recaps. Watch, listen to our succession recaps. There's more competition with brands that are using podcasts for different reasons, like, Apple and Spotify now have their own podcasts and and they're sort of like in the mix of competitors for podcast listeners and they have different goals, strategies around that audio that isn't quite about advertising, but like about building listenership. Sure. So I think that sort of like adds another, throws another wrench into the business, you know, um, where people are trying to get uh, visibility oh, you, on platforms that are it, competing with them for listeners. Right. If listeners are listening to like branded podcasts that don't need, that aren't ad supported, mm -hmm. then that bring takes listeners away from the ad supported podcasts and therefore, you know, makes it harder to do an ad supported podcast. Perhaps I can, I can see that. Yeah. And then there, there are two other things that are going on here. I think what one is that, while the ad dollar, while the ad spend isn't down, I think it has become a lot less predictable. That brands used to have like a nice, steadily growing podcast advertising budget that they could commit to, you know, many quarters in advance, and production companies could count on that money being, you know, coming in, you know, in in six months' time or nine months' time or whatever, and they could ramp up and produce a podcast in order to provide the inventory for those, you know, to, to run against those ads. Um, I think now the ads are coming in much later and it's much more sort of precarious. And if you're in ad sales in podcasting, rather than booking stuff for, you know, six months time, you're booking stuff for like next week. Mm. And, and that just makes it much harder to support a, uh, big staff of expensive producers. And as you said, you're you're absolutely right about this. The things that are getting cut are the things which involve um you know, expensive producers and are often just self-contained seasons which have always been much harder to sell, right? Because advertisers don't know 
how much interest there's going to be in some brand new season of some podcast that they, you know, that doesn't have predictable listenership week after week. Um, and so those things are harder sales and they're more expensive to produce. And so it just like the, the mathematics of it, if the industry isn't booming quite as fast as it used to be, becomes less compelling. I think also, you know, the runaway success of Serial initially kind of gave people specific expectations about how podcast success is supposed to happen. And so, and you know, Serial was a limited series, but I think, yeah, no, I think there, it, there wasn't, wasn't much competition in the market. But Elizabeth, mm -hmm. remember that like financially speaking, the Serial season one was not a runaway success at all. Like famously... They had this one MailChimp ad that did like amazing, and it was great for MailChimp because MailChimp paid almost nothing for it. And even once Serial started getting traction and everyone was talking about it, they really couldn't sell it more. Like they'd given MailChimp a bunch of exclusivity and stuff, and all of that massive um, listenership that was—I mean, it was definitely a big success in terms of listenership. It failed to translate into actual dollars. And then in subsequent seasons, you know, they probably made more money, but with lower listeners and without the buzz. It's just like no one's been able to make those seasons, you know, this, because they're expensive to produce. You know that. It's hard to make them really pay unless you get, you know, Michelle Obama to front it, in which case you can pretty much guarantee just massive audiences and brands that are going to love to be associated with it. But for most podcasts, it's really hard. And then just like in general, it's impossible to launch a podcast right now. There are a gazillion podcasts out there and trying to break through the noise to launch a new one is hard. And so, yeah, for all of those reasons... It's just a tougher business to be in. But, you know, I keep on reiterating, it's still growing very impressively. I think you'll see um, some more consolidation, too. Like, there's this wonderful podcast called In the Dark. Um, it, I don't know if you guys have ever listened to it, but it was successful in getting this guy, Curtis Flowers, basically uh, freed from prison after he spent 20 years there. It was this it's just an amazing podcast. And it got killed. And um, The New Yorker recently bought the the production in, in the dark and I think you might see a little bit more of that kind of thing happening like yeah, they move around podcasts you know switched on pop has had like four different homes or something you mm -hmm. know it just like you know some production companies like it for a minute and then they decide it's it doesn't fit with their you know program strategy so things move around to other places that totally happens right and yeah, I think Elizabeth's onto something though, because Serial was such a huge hit. Like everyone was talking about it. I don't, maybe it didn't rake in the ad money, but it sort of offered this tantalizing promise. Like you could do this really great journalism in audio format, and you could tell a long story, et cetera. But I think the key thing to have taken away from Serial was that true crime does really well as podcasts, yeah. Yeah. not great journalism. That was really what sparked everyone's kind of interest. And then, really. and then of course, the anti-serial was Caliphate, which is the big <clears throat> New York Times podcast, true, true crime podcast about uh, this guy who said he was a ISIS member, this Canadian, mm -hmm. and um, turned out to be just completely fabricated and was highly embarrassing for the New York Times when people were like, yeah, we, you know, it's hard to do the true bit of true crime. Yeah, yeah, it is. The most recent uh, season of Serial is another kind of true crime story, actually. I listened to it. It was, it was very good. I think that's probably enough media navel-gazing for one show. Um, so let's move on to hedge funds, shall we, after the break? 
This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisitions like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This is this is my story. I, I just pushed this one in there because, like, it's I can't not. Um, the Mooch. We all remember The Mooch, right? Maybe remind people. <laughs> um, Elizabeth, you're, you're, the, you're the Mooch, the, the second most Moochy expert around here. Who is The Mooch? Yes, uh, The Mooch is the head of Skybridge Capital, which is a fund of funds, but is probably better known to most Americans as the shortest tenured White House press secretary in existence. He lasted a grand total of 11 days after he called up, uh, I think it was Evan Osnos at The New Yorker. Yes, Ryan and Oh, Ryan Lissett. And, and gave him a, a big profanity laden dressing down that then the rest of the country got to read about. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you wonder what's a fireball offense in the Trump administration. Apparently, uh, that was. So that's what uh, the Mooch is probably most famous for outside of Finance circles. Um, yeah, so his his tenure at the White House lasted even less time than Rupert Murdoch's fifth engagement. It was very sad. <laughs> um, in case you hadn't heard, people, Rupert, Rupert Murdoch got engaged and then got unengaged within about two weeks, which was quite quite impressive. Um, but yeah, so before he was in politics, he was a fund to fund manager. And his big thing, he's had two big things in, in finance, really, big ideas. The first one was middle-class people should invest in hedge funds. And the idea behind Skybridge was very much that he was going to go out and be like the fidelity of hedge funds and, and, and get a whole bunch of like normal, everyday, middle-class Americans to invest in hedge funds. Um, then the second big idea, which which came much later, was and it came after his misadventures with Trump, was Bitcoin and crypto, and he became this like crazy crypto true believer. And these are both of them pretty bad ideas, but they're especially bad ideas if you combine the two. Um, 
And then if you really, really want to make it a bad idea, what you do is you combine those two bad ideas with a third bad idea, which is let's go into business with Sam Bankman-Fried. But why are we talking about the Mooch on this year episode now that everyone's caught up? So now that everyone's caught up, I'm basically, we're talking about the Mooch because all I want you guys to do is to go and read this amazing Bloomberg article that we will link to in the show notes, um, basically explaining where he's at right now. And what happened was that he started actually investing his client's money into crypto. Like, it wasn't just him playing a crypto true believer on Twitter and giving himself laser eyes, which he did, but he actually took the money that people gave him from, like, Morgan Stanley clients and stuff and started putting it into crypto funds. And obviously, those crypto funds did what you would expect them to do in the crypto winter, which is they all imploded. And he, by at least according to Bloomberg, seems as though he totally blew through... um, his internal risk limits in terms of how much risk they could put into crypto. The result being that basically since pre-pandemic, since the beginning of 2020, while the stock market is up 27%, he is down 30% on his fund of funds. And everyone's like, this is ridiculous. I want to get my money out. And he is refusing to let people take their money out. Morgan Stanley has like $800 million with him, or their clients do. And he's like, you can take out 7.5%, but I'm going to keep the rest and keep on charging 1.2% because, you know, he's allowed to do that. So he's basically barred withdrawals, except for very small ones. Um, And then at the same time, um, he sold 30% of Skybridge to Sam Bankman-Fried, and for $45 million. And now he kind of needs to buy that back somehow. But he doesn't have the $45 million because you know what he did with the $45 million? Yeah, this was the part of the story that I thought, oh my God, is this guy doesn't seem like a very good investor because he, <laughs> Sam Bankman Fried gave him $45 million, but on the condition that he like put, take that money and buy a bunch of crypto and not just any crypto, but like the, the, the specific the, the Sam FTX coins, coins yeah, that the FTT and serum and Solana. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, <laughs> and, and the, the only money he was allowed to take out in cash was the money that he was using to put on the big conference that they had in the Bahamas where they flew in Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and, you know, tried to make, FTX seem respectable because it was in the same room as Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. Yeah, can you can you even spool it out for me a little more? Because just so <laughs> it's not really a deal. Like Sam Bankman Fried is giving him money, but then the money goes right back to Sam Bankman Fried to like basically hold up these coins that are essentially worthless because the value is inflated by deals like this. Correct. Right? It's like yes. a total, it's not real. Correct. This also kind of just reinforces the the sort of stereotype about a lot of fund to fund managers, which is that they just piggyback on people who actually understand how to invest money. Um, and you know, when you look at Mooch, a lot of his talent really lies in you know his ability to market himself. Right, he, he's, he was too. never a, a fund manager, right? I mean, like he kind of played one on TV, but he Sky the heart of Skybridge was this fund of funds franchise that he bought from Citibank after the crisis and Citibank was forced to divest itself of all of these kind of things. And he bought a very well-performing fund of funds. So he got to market this 
extremely good performance that predated his acquisition. Um, and then he would go out on TV and, you know, make calls and stuff. But he didn't actually invest the money, right? There were actual professional investors who were making those calls um, until there weren't. And now, you know, apparently everyone that's left or got fired. There were like six people left at Skybridge doing actual investing. And, and so, yeah, the Mooch is a, a salesman. He's a marketer. And his job was to go out and persuade middle America to give him their money. And from the beginning, like the reason why, you know, he tried to get me fired the first time was because I wrote this thing saying like, this is a really bad idea. Like middle America should not be investing in hedge funds. Like normal Americans don't have the kind of risk appetite that you need to invest in hedge funds. And if you're going to go out and go on TV and market such investments and, you know, get Skybridge to, um, you know, do product placement in Wall Street 2 and that kind of thing, which he actually did, like... It's just, it's all going to end in tears. And, you know, I, you know, it is a, I do feel a little bit vindicated here. We should say that Scaramucci did respond to Bloomberg. He said, we had a very bad year, but what I'm not going to do is something against the interests of my clients. I'm operating inside of the ambit of the prospectus on behalf of my clients. But can you explain something to me? So hedge funds, you know, famously have these enormous fees. When you're investing in a fund of hedge funds, like, are you just paying insane fees? Are you paying fees on top of fees? Yes, Emily, you are. You are paying the 2 and 20 of the hedge fund and you're paying like 1.5 and 1 or whatever it is that the fund of funds charges on top of that. So, yeah, it's just it's just more fees and you will so never. So it's not 1, pay. 2 and 20. It's like multiple, right? He doesn't, He like, his management fee is not, it's like 1.2% at this point has been coming mm-hmm. down because no one wants to invest money. But yeah, in, in principle, the way that hedge fund, the fund of funds work is they charge a pretty hefty fee for the privilege of being able to put your money into other funds, which will charge another hefty fee on top of that. That's just terrible. That's not good. I, I, <laughs> I don't see how that is good. And at some point, does he have to, is there... Are regulations laws that require him to give them money back at some point, or can he lock it up forever? He can't lock it up forever. It's a private contract, and you know, like if if the if he gives people a piece of paper to sign that says like you can ask for your money back, but I'm not obligated to give it back, then that is a contract that is signed, you know, contracted between consenting adults, and they basically need to you know abide by that. So yeah, this is another reason why. Small individuals should not be investing in in illiquid alternative investments, right? Because when it comes to sophisticated investors, big institutional investors, they have lawyers, they go through these things and they negotiate those contracts. Mm -hmm. And they might negotiate the fees and they might negotiate the liquidity and they might negotiate lots of stuff. But if you're a small investor and it, you know, it could be um, Skybridge or it could be Masterworks or it could be any one of these, you know, online platforms for alternatives, you don't have any ability to negotiate the contract. You just have to sign whatever you're given. And that means that they they hold all the cards and they're going to write that contract in their own favor. That's true. But I think we, we should acknowledge that what Mooch is doing with redemptions is unusual. You know, he's giving investors two redemptions windows twice a year, uh, I guess, hoping that, you know, the fund will turn around during that period 
But whenever people have called in their redemptions, he just gives them like a fraction of what they're asking for if he gives them anything. Right. I mean, I mean it seems like that would make it that would be very problematic if he wants to raise another fund at any point. Oh, he's not he is definitely think, not like, going to raise yeah. another fund at any point. Like he he's just holding on to the money he has for as long as he can, precisely because he knows that he's not gonna raise another fund anytime soon, if ever. And you know what? I was thinking about this. This guy will land on his feet. Even despite all this, I will bet you anything he will land on his feet. He he spent those 11 days invested. He spent 11 <laughs> days in the Trump administration. That qualifies him to speak probably on on MSNBC or CNN or wherever, to be a political pundit, probably, right? Oh, he's, um, he's on the telly all the time. Yeah. yeah. Himself. Like, so, he has a theory that Logan Roy loves his children, which you know, <laughs> might be the only true thing he said. And that's, I mean... That's an easy theory to come up with since Brian Cox, who plays Logan Roy, has said it multiple times and mul across multiple <laughs> interviews. Like, this is not a great insight. So, I, I don't know. But, yeah, bottom line, this guy lands on his feet and he'll be fine. It just goes tells you something. Dot, dot, dot. And, and meanwhile, the people who lose money are precisely the people who, you know, he was promising to make rich. Yay. Let's have another ad break and then um, roulette. I really want to talk about roulette. Elizabeth, you don't strike me as much of a gambler. Have you ever played roulette? I have played roulette, but I don't gamble as a matter of course. When you played roulette, did what what was going through your head and did you make money? Uh, I did not make money and I wasn't very sophisticated about it. I, I sort of, whenever I do go into a casino and I gamble, I, I have like a set amount of money that I'm going to spend. And I just consider it already gone. So, so I would arbitrarily put, you know, chips down on my favorite number or something. Well, did you know that you can actually game the roulette table and win today. tons of money? <laughs> well, let me tell you, there's a whole story in Bloomberg all about it. Is that right, Felix? Um, it is. It is a great um, Bloomberg story, and yet another Bloomberg story that we're linking in the show notes. Um, about how people have basically managed to beat roulette, which is mathematically impossible. It's not physically impossible, but it's mathematically impossible. And it kind of one of the one one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this story is the way that people who design these games just get so caught up in the mathematics that they forget the real world um basically the way that roulette works is that there are either 37 or 38 holes that the little ball can drop into um but the bets pay out according to if there were 36 so like if you bet on red there are like 18 reds and you double your money or if you bet on a single number there are you know you, your money goes up by 36 times but given that there are 38 holes and two of them basically pay out nothing unless you bet on them um you know the there's always a built-in house edge of either 137th or 138th and mathematically that house edge just guarantees that law of large numbers the casino is going to make lots of money over time um and it's just this really compelling mathematics and and it's really fascinating watching people try to beat roulette 
mathematically, right? So I have a friend of mine who is quite rich and goes to casinos and does a martingale, which is, you know, a mathematical attempt to beat roulette, which is basically you go in there and you bet on, like, black. And if you double your money, you win. You're like, I've won money. If you lose your money, you bet twice as much and bet on black. And if you double your money, then you make your losses back and and still don't wind up ahead. But if you lose, you double it again, and then you double it. And then basically, you just keep on doubling the amount you're betting until you win. So yeah, so like, you know, if you can double the amount you bet every time you bet, um, then theoretically, you can always wind up winning, like eventually. Um, but anyway, this, these are dumb mathematical things which don't work. Um, the thing that works is by just looking at the ball, waiting to get a sense of the physics of the ball and where it's going to land and what segment it's going to land in, and then placing your bet once you get that sense. And if you can get that sense, you can overcome that like 137th or 138th house edge. Incredible. It's it's such a great story of, it's only Bloomberg could have done this story because the reporter clearly spent a lot of time and tracked down this guy in, was it Croatia? Yeah. Um, using another reporter inside Bloomberg who is located near Croatia to go to this like town in the middle of nowhere and make sure the guy was there. Then the reporter treks out to the town. It's like a movie. And he goes to this bar and he says, do you know Nicholas Tassa? And the bartender's like, no, never heard of him. Who's he? And he shows him a picture and the bartender's like, ah, I don't know. It's weird. Don't know the guy. And then he gets a call like a half hour later from the bartender who's like, okay, I talked to him and he will speak to you. I actually do know him actually, you know? And then he finally has this like meeting with the man who cracked roulette and it's just so amazing. And it all in this day, in this in this time of generative AI, which does anyone really know what that means? Probably someone does. Um, it all comes down to, <laughs> is the roulette wheel like a little crooked? Is, the, is it a little old? Does it have a little quirk? And then you can totally game the whole system. Yeah, so, amazing. Interesting to me was that he, apparently the way that he figured this out was he bought a roulette wheel and has it in his house. And he had, you know, played with the wheel so many times that he could anticipate where the ball was going to land. And there was a term for this. It was something like cerebral clocking, mm -hmm. where it's almost like a mental muscle memory, where he had just practiced so much that he could look at the wheel and sort of figure out what was going to happen. Like, it this reminded is, this me is of actual intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. And this is the thing that, that I, you know, the, the main reason I wanted to talk about this was because in the early days when people were trying to beat roulette, they had little, you know, crude computers hidden in their shoes and that kind of thing. And they were, try, they were trying to use, like, um, mathematical equations to work out where the ball was going to drop. And it didn't work for a million different reasons. But, like, the fact is that the human brain is amazing. You know, we can detect patterns that we can't even know that we're detecting. Mm -hmm. You know, just ask any chicken sexer, right? Like, there are things you can, like, train yourself to do that defy explanation. Um, or anyone who's any good at sports, right? Like, you, if you had to think about how am I going to hit this baseball that's coming at me at 100 miles an hour before you hit it, 
then you would never hit the baseball. You don't have time to think about it. You just you have to just train your 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 brain to respond on a very sort of unconscious and fast level. But brains are very good at that, especially if they're if like Elizabeth says, if you have a lot of practice. And it turns out that that can work and it can work quite profitably. Um, but then there was this other bit, right? Which was that in, you know, at some random point um, of the internet, there were a bunch of crypto companies and the like who were doing roulette games over the internet. And they would spin the ball and let it drop and you could bet on where the ball was going to drop just by looking at the roulette wheel on a live feed over the internet. And that is where the AIs come in, right? Because you can just train an AI to look at every single spin of that roulette wheel on that webcam for hours and days and weeks, and it never gets tired, and it just trains itself and trains itself and trains itself on a level that no human ever could. And it doesn't ever need to understand why the ball is going to drop in any given place, right? All of the early mathematical models were based on, like, physics, and, like, if it bounces off here, then it will land there, and there's, like, physics involved. The AIs don't know anything about physics. They just know they're seeing a roulette wheel spin, there's a whole bunch of data coming from the video, and then there's a result. And then they are trained to sort of, like, you know, be rewarded when they get the result right, and Get, be anti-rewarded when they get the result wrong. And it turned out that a bunch of these, that there were a bunch of players who could beat these online games. And I suspect that a bunch of them were using some kind of AI. But either way, it's just about building habits that you don't really understand. It reminded me of when I was a waitress at Pizzeria Uno. And <laughs> I developed, I knew when the pizza was coming out of the oven. Like, I didn't have to look at a clock or a watch or anything. It was like, I put in the order... And then I'd be walking around doing my waitress thing. And then just like my brain would be like, go check if pizza's ready. And it would always be ready. And it was so amazing. And not <laughs> not, not every server could do this. And um, But it's, it's really true how the, the mind kind of figures out patterns. And you don't even have to, to think about it. You just know it's time to check if the pizza's ready. Or I don't know, you feel like it, whatever it is, time to wake up, time to go to bed, like the your brain is like on this other AI level. It's not AI, it's actual just I, I guess. It's 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 what Danny Kahneman calls system one and system two, right? It's, mm -hmm. the, it's the, you want, you, you make sure that you, it becomes unconscious. It's like mm -hmm. typing, you know? Mm -hmm. Like most of us at this point, we just type things. We think of a word and then it appears on the screen. You're like, that's clever. If we, <laughs> we're not, we're not hunting and pecking for letters anymore. Right. Right. Yeah, we we are trained. But it sounds like in the case of the the websites with the roulette wheels, I mean, what the AI was doing was actually similar to what happens in the in the human brain then. So now, yeah, so now roulette is is this weird arms race between people who just train themselves to beat it and the, you know, traveling to countries which haven't got the technology to try and overcome these people and that the way you try and overcome these people is by making sure that the roulette wheel is replaced relatively frequently and is perfectly flat and you get lasers to in, to make sure that there aren't any tilts and all of this kind of stuff um but yeah there was this one story where he he walked into uh 
um, a casino in London and he knew there was this one wheel that was, you know, a little bit tilted to, in one direction. And he just kind of looked around the casino and then walked into a back room and they moved the roulette wheel. And he's like, oh, no, that one. He could just tell there was something mm -hmm. about it that he could tell that was the one that he was going to play at and win it. Yeah, it was also interesting that there there was some report about this being a trend that, that some of the casinos got together and did. And the tiny little imperfections in the wheel would heavily determine, you know, how it functioned. And so it wasn't just whether the wheel was tilted. There were things like if the croupier had lotion on their hands or something like that could yeah. affect things or, you know, the depth of the slots, you know, just all sorts of just minute things that would make it sort of impossible to mathematically model anything. Yeah, you can't mathematically model the effect of lotion, but there is an effect of lotion and you can get a feel for it, you know? And that's and like I feel like this is where this is why um generative AI is more powerful, you know, because it can wind up with those kind of you get a feel for it types of intelligence mm -hmm. beyond just like the, you know, being able to be good at sums type yeah. of intelligence. That's like the common sense smarts kind of a thing versus the mathematical, this is how it's supposed to work. The equation says so smarts. Also, wait, one question. Why don't they just make computerized roulette wheels? Is it because no one would play? Because it's like right. Like okay. because like this is the, like the obvious way to solve this problem, um, and it would be one hundred percent effective, would be to make people place their bets before you toss the ball, mm -hmm. right? But that would like that is a game that no one wants to play. There's something about seeing the ball rolling around, and you kind of like think to yourself, "I can see where it's going to bounce to," that makes you want to bet. Without that feeling of like. In principle, I should be able to guess where this is going to land. It it just becomes a pure lottery game, <laughs> and and yeah, people play lotteries, but they don't play lotteries in casinos. Yeah. Also, there are digital roulette games in some some casinos, but I think that for the people who are making big bets, that sort of takes all of the glamour out of it. Yeah. Like you want a physical roulette table. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, should we have a numbers round? Elizabeth, do you have a number? Uh, yes, my number is 5.4, and that's the percentage of media coverage devoted to women's sports. And I got this from a Times article about a bar in Portland, Oregon, that is exclusively devoted to women's sports, and it's called the Sports Bra. It's a good name. I like that. <laughs> uh, but this is only the third year the women's NCAA basketball tournaments have been fully covered in national media. What, what does fully covered mean? I mean, they're, they're showing all the tournament games. Oh, so m media coverage, not meaning like people writing about it, but just actually just showing it on the telly. Yeah, I have noticed a difference this year with the coverage. Been yeah, nice. it made Axios AM more than once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was talking to, to one of my colleagues at Axios about this. It's like, wait, we're running stories about how there are single double doubles and stuff. And I'm like, that's amazing. I have no idea what it means, but I'm very <laughs> impressed that the women have equally incomprehensible coverage now alongside the men. <laughs> oh, Felix. Um, my number is 140 million. 
which is the amount of money that the U.S. government paid Booz Allen between October 2018 and November 2022 as a a commission, let's say, on all of the money that people spent on the website for the National Park Service making reservations at national parks. What? Yeah. Uh, the National Park Service has a re- has a reservations website, and for there are certain hikes that are super popular, and so you need to like reserve a spot on them. There are certain mm-hmm. like camping grounds you need to reserve. Uh, various bits and pieces of the national parks are based on a reservation system, so they can control the number of people who who can use it. And it's all done on this website, and the website is run by Booz Allen. And then basically, what happened? post-pandemic was that everyone wanted to go to the national parks and spend lots of money. So Booz Allen has made like twice as much money from this website than they thought it would, they, than they thought they would because it's based on a sort of per transaction formula, which is top secret and confidential. So we don't know what it is, but we do know that they've made $140 million in less than five years, which for running a website is not bad money. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Uh, congratulations. Well done, Booz Allen. Apparently, they were they were the low bidder. So imagine how much someone else would have got. <laughs> Emily, what's your number? My number is five, as in five percent. That is the unemployment rate for Black Americans, and it is the lowest it has ever been, which is incredible, um, and a result of intentional decisions made. I think. In, well, it's the result of a very tight hot labor market that's pulling more and more workers in to get jobs and also partly intentional strategy in the part of the Federal Reserve, which waited to raise rates, some would argue, waited too long because it wanted to keep the job market kind of humming along to actually pull in um, Black Americans who usually kind of get, they get to the party just as the punch bowl is being pulled typically. Um, So this is really, it's really good news. Our colleague Courtney Brown had a great chart this Mm -hmm. week showing that the difference between black unemployment and white unemployment has basically gone to zero, which Mm -hmm. is unprecedented. Yeah. Um, Well done, Federal Reserve, for that, if nothing else. Um, And with any luck, inflation will come down, everyone will be happy, and we will all be listening to a Slate Money Succession podcast at some point on Monday but we don't know when once we've managed to you know get it all in the can and get it out Um, but we do have a good guest for that one Abigail Disney she can tell us what it's like to be a member of a high profile media family Um, so that's coming up on Monday other than that I think that's it for the regular show we'll have a Slate Plus segment on the whole Clarence Thomas brouhaha Many thanks to Ben Richmond and Patrick Bort for producing, and we'll be back next week with more Sleet Money. <laughs>